Today's episode is made possible by Northwestern University Press and their new release, Fire is Not a Country, poems by Cynthia Dewioka. In her third collection, Indonesian-American poet Cynthia Dewioka dives into the implications of being parents, children, workers, and unwanted human beings under the savage reign of global capitalism and resurgent nativism. With a voice bound and wrestled apart by multiple histories, Fire is Not a Country claims the spaces between here and there, then and now, us and not us. Listeners receive a 20% discount on Fire is Not a Country or any other title with promo code POD20. This offer is available at nupress.com northwestern.edu. Today's episode is also brought to you by Kyle Lushawu's debut novel, Win Me Something, which T. Kara Madden calls a resonant knockout. The novel tells the story of Willa, a biracial Chinese-American woman who finds herself questioning who she is and revisiting a childhood where she never felt fully at home. After taking a job working for the Adrians, a wealthy white family in Tribeca, as a nanny for their daughter, Bijou. Says Crystal Hannah Kim, Win Me Something is an observant, contemplative story about the complex reality of growing up with a mixed identity in two starkly different mixed families. Kyle Lucia Wu deftly weaves back and forth between Willa's teenage years and her adult life to explore loneliness, uncertainty, and a singular, persistent question. Where do I truly belong? Win Me Something is out now from Tin House. Before we begin today's conversation with interdisciplinary artist Tija Jin about her debut novel, I wanted to mention something that was a first for the show. With each guest, long before we actually talk, I ask if they would be willing to contribute something to the bonus audio. I do this in advance so they have time to think about it in case they are willing to contribute something. And sometimes this is straightforward. What they think of is what actually materializes. For instance, Phil Metris and Arthur Z, both reading some of their translations of poems from the Russian and Chinese respectively. Other times what we decide upon changes because of the conversation we end up having. Alice Oswald didn't know that Ann Carson was going to ask her a question during our conversation, and in the end decided her contribution to the bonus audio would be a response to Ann Carson. Neither Kava Akbar or myself knew in advance that part of our conversation about his book would be about one specific poem that he loved but that didn't quite fit in the collection, so was left out. And so after the fact, he decided that him reading and talking about this poem in praise of the laughing worm would be a particularly compelling contribution. But when I reached out to Tija Jin, her response took me by surprise. She said she would love to contribute something, but that she wanted me to give her a writing prompt from which she would write something entirely new for the occasion. So Tija's contribution, a poem, is something written especially for us. 
in response to a prompt that I created especially for her. Because of that, I'm part of this bonus audio this time, reading my prompt. I won't read the prompt here, but what you're going to learn shortly about Tija's novel is not only that food plays a significant role in the book, not just as a multi-generational passing down of knowledge and love, not just as an instrumental part of the smuggling activity in the part of the story that is a crime story, but also formally speaking, that the shape of the book and methodology of how it unfolds is related to the physical shape of one particular food. My prompt to her is in the spirit of this as well. To find out more about how to subscribe to the bonus audio and to check out the various other potential benefits of transforming yourself from a listener to a listener supporter of Between the Covers, from rare collectibles from past guests to becoming an early reader for Tin House, receiving 12 books over the course of the year, months before the general public, head over to patreon.com slash between the covers. And now for today's program with Tija Jin. These stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. Had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition. Was working at a vet and kind of lint-rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still, and you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to, like, put their fingers in the wounds, in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain, and it's put on spin. Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest is interdisciplinary artist Tija Jin. Jin has a master's in English from University College London and is an alumnus of the Barbican Young Poets Program, where she now creates digital art, art that explores what it means to be human when technology is changing everything, as part of the Barbican Center's Design Yourself Collective. She's the recipient of a London Writers' Award for Literary Fiction, and her writing has been commissioned by venues from Battersea Arts Centre to St. Paul's Cathedral. She's performed her work everywhere from the Tate Modern to the Mayor of London's Eid Festival. Tija Jen has worked at both Sage Publishing and the Poetry Translation Centre, where she serves on their advisory board. She's also a consultant with the community project New Muslim Stories, and she's currently community manager for Tilted Axis, a press founded by Deborah Smith, the translator of Han Kang's The Vegetarian, which focuses on translated literature, but which is also exploring alternatives to current status quo hierarchies, where certain languages and forms and certain forms of translation are elevated above others. 
Tija Jin is also a producer and DJ. She's creating poetic sound portraits with the composer Pietro Bardini that highlight the sonic beauty of linguistic and dialectical crossings. As part of Threads Radio, she's interviewed everyone from founders of theater companies to music journalists, and she herself has been a music journalist, writing everything from music reviews to reviews of concerts and music festivals. She's also releasing an EP to accompany the release of her debut novel, the one we're talking about today, Keeping the House, just out from and other stories. The Guardian calls Keeping the House a cult classic in the making, describing it as, quote, a kind of textual collage offering vistas of Turkish communities of North London in pacey, often impressionistic chapters that glitter with inventive descriptions. The stinging fly says, this is Jen telling the reader how keeping the house is going to go. It will read like memoir. It will read like crime fiction. It will read as snappy dialogue in a screenplay. It will be peppered with truncated lines where a full sentence will let too much air in. There will be poignant segments about great friendship and great loss, surveillance and violence, and the weight of gender, what happens when we lose our grip on our own stories. There will be hairy gangsters taking the piss out of one another. At the skinny, they say, Keeping the House is a refreshingly unique and vivid debut. The novel expertly interweaves questions about family, community, trauma, and belonging into episodes that are often humorous, sometimes heartbreaking, but always poetic. Tija Jin manages to offer the reader a totally new and exciting narrative style that feels fresh, confident, and powerful. It captures the buzz of London life and lifts the lid on the vibrant culture of the Turkish Cypriot community. Finally, Gail Lazda at the London Review Bookshop says, a brilliant London novel of the kind we need more of. Polyphonic, multilingual, thrillingly alive with all the people, food, music that make this city what it is. Welcome to Between the Covers, Tisha Jen. Uh, thank you so much. So, it feels strange to hear it all in one go, <laughs> but, but, very, but very lovely and uh, yeah, I'm, I'm a big fan, so I'm happy to be speaking with you today. Yeah, I'm happy about it, too. Well, one of the things that really distinguishes this book is your attention to the specifics and particulars of place. And by place, I don't mean England or London, but more specifically the neighborhood of Tottenham. Um, I read that your early working title for this book was A Love Letter to Tottenham. And I wouldn't normally ask you to orient us in this way, but you've you've talked about wanting to guide us in other interviews and wanting to even tour us through the neighborhood where you grew up. And I, I suspect most of your British readers at least have associations with this place when they read you. But given that now we're we're talking and being listened to in, in North America, I suspect many readers have little or perhaps no association with this neighborhood. So I wondered if we could start here with 
maybe an introduction. And I was hoping you'd be willing to give us two perspectives. Um, one, if you were meeting new people here in the United States or Canada and were describing Tottenham, what would you say? And two, how do you think it's perceived by the rest of London? When I've spoken to my friends in North America before, um, we we'll, we'll jokingly say, oh, you know, it's the place where Adele grew up. It's um, but something I think that's the most global way that I ever saw Tottenham spoken about um, was in relation to the riots that began there. And, you know, the most recent ones as well, just a few years ago. I think it's a site that always pushes back against um, police surveillance and against the strictures of a government that is quite binding towards people who struggle in poverty. And that's the place where I grew up, you know, we would walk down the road and someone would hand you a block tape and there's like music everywhere and the community harbors one another. I think when I've spoken to, I have a lot of friends in New Jersey and it's, it, we seem to speak about the, the two areas in quite a similar way, this, um, this sense of being adopted by strangers and having a lot of different pockets of solace where I think sometimes when I think about my village in North Cyprus, it's not quite the same because people have a, um, a familiarity with you in a village like North Cyprus that also gives them conditions towards you. Whereas in Tottenham and certain communities like this that I think are quite specific to cities and, um, and bigger towns, there's an anonymity that gives you a greater opportunity for friendship and a greater opportunity for running away. Yeah, when you do, or as I did, a, a casual search on the neighborhood, just a random Google search, of course you learn that it's very multicultural, a large Afro-Caribbean population, considerable Asian and Jewish populations. But quickly you see most of of what gets put forth is um, gangs and crime syndicates and and drug wars and and the London riots of 2011, which began there after a police shooting, and how the Turkish mafia controls more or controlled more than 90% of the heroin market in the UK. But what's really, I think, evident both in what you've just described and what the experience of reading Keeping the Houses is that you seem to invert this way of describing a place. Yes, your book takes place among Turkish Cypriot heroin traders in Tottenham, but it's uh, that feels like a in a strange way it feels like that's beside the point and it's it's matter of factly delivered. Um, you're not glamorizing anything. You don't reduce the place to its most obviously reductive elements. Um, it feels like you're you're being lovingly attentive to it. Um, the good and the bad, but that the people are going about their lives, of course, 
like anywhere, um, paying the bills, making food, falling in love, being betrayed. Um, I guess I wondered if this was partly a writing, if, if this is just the way you write about place spontaneously or whether there's also a part of you that's writing against a stigma or a stereotype. I think this, this writing against felt more subconscious, um, but it became more apparent the further I got into the manuscript. I noticed that when we speak about places where the reputation precedes themselves, um, it's often quite rushed. And I really wanted to linger. You know, when we're thinking about um, the original, um, the working title that I always knew I was going to change it, but I gave it to myself because I wanted to remember that with a love letter, um, you know, like when Keats wrote his love letters, they were always very still and they paused and, and let the feelings soak through. And so I wanted to write like that about the place. Um, I wanted to feel that I had the luxury of, of looking around, especially, you know, when writing about topics that are um, loaded with danger. Often, you know, in real life, I can't stand in certain rooms for too long to observe as many details. And so I think, you know, writing about some of these um, mafia bosses, um, sitting room spaces and seeing them sitting there alone before any action takes place. It felt, I felt quite um, emotional about that, you know, mm. writing about stillness, about a man with a blanket over the top of him you know, even though he's got this horrible stuff going on around him. And I think that was the case with all my characters. I try not to hate any of them. Yeah, I, you, I never feel like someone is set up to be hated in the book. I feel like Thank one you. of the way you, you, retel, you retell the story of this place is, is by centering the women. Um, the book is polyvocal and there are plenty of men who at various points take the microphone. Um, but the backbone is three generations of women and the book opens with them. And because it opens with them, we, we see and hear and smell and think quite differently, I think, um, or, we experience those things through these 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 particular three women. And you've mentioned that when men write crime fiction, there's very little room for fragility. Uh, and I was wondering if you could talk, as you're mentioning here, the the stillness in the Keats letter and and these moments of stillness, um, and hear also about fragility. Um, if you could talk more about this choice of centering the women and how that sort of transforms um, the, everything from the tone to the point of view. I often wonder when, when we see a character who is, is less represented within quite a popular topic, whether it helps us to revisit the topic too. 
I think characters like Isla um, are, are women who are often sidelines, um, you know, single mums who have these great ideas. Something that always strikes me is having these types of women and pointing out that the ideas were theirs to begin with, you know. Um, it personally it happens to me quite often and I think it's, you know, it's one of the running anecdotes where you'll, you'll suggest somebody pulls the plug out from the back of a speaker that's, um, you know, blowing up or something like this, uh, take the plug out from the amp. And then they will say, um, you know, someone else will say it and then suddenly the amp will get fixed. And then people will say, oh, well, women cannot fix an amp. And I said, but she, she would have fixed the amp if you'd have heard her suggest it. And so I'm hoping that there's this reality that's pointed out through this, you know, that all these lost voices within a certain trade humanize things further but also build a larger picture i think you know when we when we look at um, goodfellas you know we see women flushing drugs down the toilet and these other iconic movies and women are always present i'm trying to make the women in my stories do something different to those women. Their sisters, yes, um, you know, I think my characters do speak to like the canons of like, of a crime fiction written by men as well as by women. But I'm hoping that my characters can also, I think, because they're written from a queer femme perspective, I think that it maybe allows for something slightly um, less, less seen to take place. Well, I just read your, your new piece. Um, tell me if I get the title wrong. I just read it this morning, but in LitHub, the, the new piece notes on queerness and camp in, in crime fiction. And you were talking there about how, um, queerness will often get put forth in a very simplistic way in these narratives. Um, and that you were looking for more um, capacity for portrayals that involved both an overlaying of possibly contradictory or countervailing um, components in them in the way that a character is, is shown. And that just made me feel like, um, you know, the choice to start with women and, the, and also to open the book with food and then ultimately all the ways in which um, cabbages are involved in this book. Because I, I think of, you're not talking deeply in this new essay in LitHub about cabbages, but I can't help thinking about how you're talking about the layering of leaves in this essay around queerness and the ways you've talked about cabbages in this book. So we open the book with the smells of food cooking in the kitchen and the garden becomes a place the book continually returns to. But cabbages are a significant role in the plot um, as a way Isla figures out how to smuggle heroin in in the heart of a cabbage. But you've also said that cabbage influences the form, uh, which I've sort of alluded to. Um, but since 
this is a historical moment. When we look back in 20 years after there have been several decades of cabbage-shaped books across the world, and remember this moment of talking about the cabbage form emerging, talk to us about, talk to us about the cabbage form um, of keeping the house. Oh, what a delightful question. I, um, I originally saw it as a heroin-scented cabbage. And I, when I first started writing the book, I thought if I put the heroin plot in the middle, then perhaps it can fill this strange subversion where you've gone from what appears to be a coming-of-age novel into a crime fiction and then out. And I love, I absolutely love toying with genre. And then on a personal aspect, I think writing about Damla's coming into her own and starting to understand who she is and how her life experiences have affected her. I think by availing that through those various leaves of plot, I was able to, to pillow her experiences and build sympathy with the reader. I think sometimes when you nest the heart of a book in a lot of other plots, um, I see, I often do this with my poetry and I've seen a lot of other really brilliant writers such as Raymond Antropos do the same, um, where they will just- He's coming on the show next month, actually. Oh, I really rate him, I really rate him. <laughs> this is, um, you know, if you nest things, it gives your reader time to come with you. And that's almost been my hope. I um, I think about, you know, with a cabbage, there's, you know, you cut it open and it looks like a brain. And it's, I just think there's all these webs and having that drawing in front of me while I was writing the book really helped me to understand plot from a, um, you know, from the perspective of having um, complex PTSD, where I sometimes I lose my concentration and just keeping returning to this sense that I didn't have to write in one line. I could instead keep um, gathering things in these, um, I suppose, I wanted to gather them as if they were items along the way for us to get somewhere. And I think sometimes with plot, it feels friendlier to do that. It feels easier than, you know, I've often seen people um, disregard non-linear narrative and call it, um, you know, a plague of Tumblr extracts published as books. I've seen a lot of people say things like this. Um, wow. It sounds like I'm just quoting one person, but it's, right. it's like, there's a big discourse around this, um, this worry that, um, the Gen Z and millennial writer have ruined the novel. And of course that's not true because I think if people have been writing non-linear novels for hundreds, uh, well, for at least a hundred years and, and it is even the word novel feels weird. That's why I, I was going to go and say hundreds. I was like, oh. but foreign people, you know, people from other countries and, you know, in Argentina, they, they've always been open to non-linear narratives. Yeah, and I think for my next book, I'm also writing it with a kind of cabbagey 
thing. So I'm going to chuck something in the middle of the cabbage and then slowly build the book around it. <laughs> when you said earlier that you, it really helped you to have the drawing of the cabbage. So that's true that you would draw out leaves of the cabbage and connect them to narrative threads, like visually have the drawing, drawing of a cabbage as part of your organization. Yes. I like to have um, images. I think it really it provides a, a tool point. I love that. Thank you. So the 19th century Turkish Cypriot outlaw, Hasan Buli, he, he's mentioned in passing in, in Keeping the House, a story of him escaping capture yet again, but this time by dressing as a woman. And it was interesting to read outside of the book about him because he was seen by both Greek and Turkish Cypriots at the time as fighting against British colonialism on Cyprus, but that ultimately over time, the Greek epic poems and the Turkish epic poems diverge with the Greeks emphasizing more of his negative qualities, reducing him to more of a bandit and the Turkish making him more of a hero. But really, either way, he becomes this larger-than-life mythic figure in, in, in Cypriot culture. And I bring him up because, not because he's important, or maybe he is important to this book, but he, he, he seems to be brought up in passing in this book. But two or three years ago, you, you were on a podcast called Bedtime Stories for the End of the World, where you chose to retell the hero folklore of Hassan Bouli. Uh, but from the perspective of his lover. And you talked about how women, similar to what you just said about Goodfellas, are both marginal and flatter as characters in the story of the hero. I guess this probably also connects to this notion of sort of the deconstruction of this certain shape of what we expect of a novel that you're talking about that's getting critiqued around Tumblr extracts too. So here it feels like by, by centering the book or centering this retelling of the story in the podcast with the lover. So the hero's doing some grand escape, he, which he does over and over again, but we're staying with the lover. We're staying with the life of the lover, um, not with these escapes that are happening elsewhere. And that somehow feels like a portal to this book, to me, this choice. You could, because you could have given us a female hero in this book, but instead it feels like you've sort of gotten rid of heroes altogether. But I would actually take this a step further and say you've gotten rid of, you've almost gotten rid of protagonists, as strange as that might sound, because the book feels really unstable in a really interesting way around whose story it is and for how long. Um, so I was hoping maybe you could Talk to us about point of view in keeping the house in this light. I I never intended to have a protagonist of keeping the house. And I think I wanted to tell the story of this apparatus, which is I think not not just the North London heroin trade, but more the idea of a community that expels you and then also swallows you. 
And so people pass like buses in that way. You know, people don't, we don't know how long we can stay with them in real life. Something about, um, to, to bring it back to complex PTSD as well, is you don't really know when the next thing is going to occur. And you don't really know when, um, how long a person is around for. I think I write from a place of loss and, you know, when, when writing about characters like Makpula and the fragility of her memory from PTSD-induced dementia, I hope to, to really draw out this as much as we can get from someone before it's their turn to go. And with that poem that I wrote for um, Bedtime Stories, this girl, Hassan Bodhi's partner, you know, she was just like, you know, as I say um, in the podcast as well, you know, she's kind of left to pick up the pieces. And I do often wonder about how um, juggernauts of a trade leave people to pick up pieces and how much of that can be comical. You know, sometimes it is literally flushing things down a toilet and uh, hiding things under your sink. And then some of it is, um, you know, raising children with an absent father. Could we hear the opening to the book? You, you've I've heard you read it several times in various contexts, and I just love your your the way you open the book for us and with your own voice. Thank you so much. Must um, I haven't read it for a little while as well, so it would be nice to return to it. So this comes in right after a cast list that is um, slightly like a telenovela. Then we enter the book. Keeping the House, 1999. Careful. When you turn your eyes towards someone, you allow them the chance to turn theirs on you. The first time I spoke to my neighbor, I tried to memorize his salt cracked lips while I had the chance to stare. He called me sweet child and tucked his thumb under my chin. I asked him why he played his music so loudly. Didn't it hurt his ears? He leant forward and told me that it feels best when your ears ring sick. I watched his nails dig into the brick that boxed off his home from men. His veins jumped and moved in his hands and he gripped the border between us to still himself. Following these veins, from the curves of his triceps to the brick wall, I thought to myself, they're pointed at me. I'm listening to Tija Jen read from her debut novel, from and other stories called Keeping the House. So beyond cabbages, there are many other ways you've you've created entirely new forms in this book. And one of them we notice right away on page one, something that goes throughout the entire book. And that is a, a secondary set of words that are smaller and in italics 
and sometimes appear in the margins, and sometimes appear above a word, and sometimes interrupt the main text with a, a square of text that the primary text has to flow around. And some of this is explanatory. You're telling us what something means in the primary texts, or you clarify a name. But sometimes these secondary words are indicating a change in the language that's being spoken. And I haven't seen anything really like this. I mean, I guess the closest thing um, visually might be Max Porter's Lanny. Uh, and I know you've you've he's been a mentor and editor for you with this book. But he isn't changing the typesetting for the same reasons, I don't think, um, or the same purposes. So I was hoping maybe you could talk about the desire uh, both to include the explanatory notes and orient us with them in a way that changes the visual aspect of the page um, and also to flag us to when language is shifting or shifting back? I really wanted to make sure that when using other languages within Keeping the House, that they were never in the margins and they were never italicized. It felt important to me to make sure they stayed within the body of the text. And this is not to um, poke buttons at other people who have done that. But I think for me, I felt that when writing about multilingual communities, it's important to look at the way words run into each other. And there felt something quite empowering to see the, um, the English being put in the margin and sometimes see the English wrap around the Turkish term. It felt like I didn't have to make a sacrifice with language. I could show people as it was being said. I always wanted to have that going through. Um, write this book as is. Don't um, render it for a reader in such a way that you lose the um, immediacy of a conversation that has to keep running forwards. People, I don't think, stop. They don't stop to translate themselves. They often don't even realize when they slip into another language and sometimes they do it with someone who doesn't speak the language back. I love that. I love this um, this way that we surprise each other and surprise ourselves with how much we can forget the various tongues and codes that we use. In terms of typesetting, I wasn't sure what would be possible. I, When I first started writing a book a couple of years ago, I experimented with putting the English around the Turkish or the Kurmanji terms. And then I thought it wouldn't be possible. So I put it into the margins and into footnotes. And then I, I just kept trying to play around with it. When I met Max and we started speaking about um, him editing me, he just, he said to me like, you, you can do it. <laughs> it's no, it's no problem. I was worried that because I was a smaller publisher that there wouldn't be the budget for typesetting like this. You know, it's all hand-drawn. It's a lot of love and care put into it. Um, but fortunately, you know, Stefan Tobler and uh, Emma Warhurst, they were two 
Um, they were both very passionate about making sure that happens. And I'm really happy that Max also told me to go for it. I think I realized I've been lucky because I think a lot of people who are fresh into getting their books published aren't told by somebody that you can ask for things. We just sack off those um, queries before we've even made it to the meeting room. And I think this book really feels to me like a a good template for what happens when someone tells you to ask for things. Um, but also I've told myself to ask for things a lot. I think I came with a, a type of bravado, I don't know, that um, I don't know where it came from. <laughs> and probably the way I grew up. But, yeah. yeah. So what were the, what were the things um, that you asked for that you had bravado versus the things that you asked for that maybe you wouldn't have asked for? So with the typesetting, I wouldn't have asked to have had such hand-drawn typesetting. That wouldn't have occurred to me. Um, things that I was determined to push on was that the cover would be shot by Lost in Tottenham, Richard Dixon. I grew up with him. And I always knew my book cover had to be from the community. Mm. Yeah, I had to have a Lost in Tottenham cover. That that was a deal breaker for me. I would have left any publisher if they just said no to that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm glad you got it. I'm really happy. It's just, it's one of them things. I don't think this book is just about me. I think this book is about um, all my people and what we can do together. You can't get things off the ground alone. And everyone that I've like, thanked in my acknowledgements are people who, like, I, you know, of course, all, as acknowledgements are, you can't do it without those people. But I I just had so many setbacks. I really did need, like, um, a, you know, a village to raise a child. Well, I want to ask you more about these language, about the language indicators and the, and that you've put in a different type setting. Um, when you've been interfacing with the public as the community manager of Tilted Axis, you've talked about how the press focuses on translations from Asia with a preference toward experimental writing and that the press aspires to be anti-colonial and radical feminist in its practices. For instance, paying writers and translators the same regardless of what country they are from as one example. But but what I found particularly interesting was that the press doesn't preference English first language speakers to translate books into English. That in fact it actually prefers translators who speak English as a second language as their translators. And this is definitely a departure from historical convention in a really interesting way, I think. One benefit of this, I could imagine, would be it, it, it would open translation opportunities to many more non-white translators. But on the level of language, it also seems like it could suggest the possibility that there's something gained having a translator whose relationship to English isn't necessarily seamless and entirely unconscious. That maybe having that uh, more conscious and less seamless connection with English might have some advantages, but somehow I felt like it 
I connect this, though I'm not exactly sure I can articulate it, I connect this choice of tilted axis, um, not in a, any sort of causative way, but as a resonance with how you're using, you're, you're not, you're using not only Turkish words and Kurdish words and Arabic words in the book, but indicating them as such in English. Do you feel a connection between these two? This, this sense of um, maybe back to the cabbage, the, the layering of, um, of language and relation to language in this way? Mm, I really love translating um, from the second layer, like you're saying. I think it's, it's really fun. Um, with um, mainland Turkish, I'm less familiar with it. And so when I try to translate mainland Turkish back into English, it feels really fun because it gives you... I think that that moment of suspense where you're trying to cross between two languages is an area of rich creativity. And something that I love about Tilted Access books is that um, this is often, you can see this, this, um, this frisson, I think, mm-hmm. you know, with Mui uh, Popsicle who um, translates the Thai literature that we work on. I think that's something that she does really well where she, she just shows a moment of um, deep contemplation between English and Thai. Um, and I think I really like to just make it clear to people that just because English is your first language doesn't mean you're an expert in English. And so why does English need to be in your first language, you know? Um, English may have been my first language, but then I forgot English and I had to relearn it, you know? So it's like, um, I think that question of what came first, the chicken or the egg, is something that we can we can make good art from, you know, to, to challenge ourselves and, and to stay in the murky waters. Yeah. No, I love that. I mean, you could have chosen to have these various languages, but then not indicate them as such in English, um, just had the language there. But the fact that you keep putting these indicators, we've switched, um, it's, it's a strange effect. Um, it feels like we're, in a weird way, it feels like we're both in both languages and outside of both languages at the same time. Thank you. I... Creatively, I'm very inspired by this um, separation and then bringing you in. Someone that whispers to you, but also is kind of side-eyeing you while they're doing it. Mm, that's a good way to put it. <laughs> Thank you. There's, this, there's an interesting juxtaposition between the ways you go out of your way to orient us, because you do, in certain respects, go out of your way to orient us um, beyond the the typical book, letting us know what the names for food are or what something means in another language. But this happens alongside ways in which the book defamiliarizes narrative at the same time, and also in unusual ways, beyond the fact that it's polyvocal 
and that when someone takes over the story, we don't know whether we will see them again or how long they're going to be in charge of the story. Um, the book is fragmentary and doesn't just leap across language and from one character to the, to the next, but it also suddenly shifts time and slips unexpectedly and without warning from prose to poetry and then back again. And there are a lot of these gaps and leaps or interruptions on top of the visual ways the typesetting alters the flow of the reading experience. And all of this um, you call glitching. Um, and, and rather than you experimenting for experimentation's sake, you said that many of these choices are a way for you to capture what life and language is like for a person whose brain glitches. So um, I know you've, you've alluded to complex PTSD a couple of times already, um, but I was hoping you could talk to us about glitching and how glitching has become another way the book is, is shaped. I love glitches. <laughs> um, with my collective Design Yourself, I, a lot of us currently are very preoccupied by glitch art as well. There's because something think, called glitch art. Yeah, so we we render videos with um, certain software and, and it, it will ripple something. So you'll see a duck and it will start to like expand and turn into like yellow paint just shooting at you or something like this. Mm. And there's something I really enjoy about, I think, looking at the technological disruptions that can be made with certain types of AI. And, um, you know, like with um, when I use music software and I'm producing, if I put a sample in and transpose it, sometimes there will be like um, a half second where I've slowed down the sample, but the the take has been has decayed slightly in that process, and I love that. I love these um, uh, absences, but in, and intrusions with when you're trying to remold something. I never knew how to write a novel. I it's my first book, so um, I didn't know how to construct plot. I, I'd heard about plot, <laughs> but I didn't know how to how to make plot myself. And I found that as I was writing this book, you know, I was writing it in, in very difficult situations. And, you know, I wasn't in a cushy like house. I, I was uh, moving about a fair bit. And the book, I think, shows this, this title like, where life glitches you and life comes in and forces you to put down the pen and pick it back up and it changes the shape of the book. But also, I think um, a thought, you know, like I think sometimes, you know, an intrusive thought, it may be positive or negative, might come into my mind. And then I'm interested in how that can immediately change the flow of a mood within a paragraph, for example. If um, if a thought like that comes in while I'm writing a love scene, then, and then boom, like it's going to become a different type of scene. I've often found that. Um, when writing romance, um, in particular, I'm, I like to 
really look at that because it's something people get uncomfortable about thinking about. There's a lot of, um, you know, love scenes that we see that are a bit um, thwarted by people's mental health, you know, um, and that gives those things poignancy. Um, and I, I just hope that we can get used to seeing it in a way that it doesn't feel like something that a director's put in to be edgy. You know, this is no one, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to like emulate people, uh, you know, like, like stories that Black Swan, you know, where it's kind of, there seems more of an artistic intention there than like, um, in my opinion, than a place of realness. Like, a, I don't, I, I'm feeling those glitches. They're not, they're not being planted for experiment sake, as you're saying, which I appreciate. Well, you wrote a piece where you recommend books for people who feel glitched and you quote from each one. And the quote you chose from a book called This Tilting World um, jumped out to me. The quote was, how to work so that everything both connects and comes apart and we see it all anew. How to dig beneath first impressions to discover a second language, to create hidden connections, associations, reminders, echoes, harmonies. And something about everything connecting and coming apart at the same time feels, definitely feels like the experience of reading Keeping the House, which it's not entirely, when you talk about plot, I don't know that plot is what's holding the book together. Uh, it's it's mysterious, the connecting and the coming apart, because it does feel like it's in a fragile place. Like the book could come apart and is yet is is coming together, if that makes any sense. I almost imagined this type of shimmering line from beginning to end when I saw the project in my head before I finished it. A very thin shimmering line. And... I knew I had to put it there and I had to reach towards it. There's a feeling that I'm trying to capture and keep in the house. Um, a feeling that I got when I was watching um, Moonlight as well. This feeling seen in a, on soft sand. Feeling that whatever happens, there's something that's preserved. And, you know, like we make bread under the sand and come back to it and it's there. I, I, I feel grateful the book is there. I feel grateful that certain people are reading it and can feel that since that I've tried my best to plant things that we can go back to. So it's also what I hope with my day job and I think with all my work is just trying to create an archive for as many different people as possible, for as many different things as possible. Could could we hear another uh, section from the book? I, I picked out a little section, if you don't mind. That's great. I like, I like the book. <laughs> um, I don't know if I have the same page numbers because I have the advanced copy, but... I've got the advanced copy as well. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> 
I have the other one, but I think there's something to me that feels sentimental. This is the first ever copy I received, so I, I often read from it. <laughs> so this is from the section either looking after Magpula, 2001. Our talking has made time slip away. And now Anna's due for her hirudoide cream again. Yellow skin and varicose veins. Anna's legs look like this after all that time spent in the waterlogged melon fields. But she's other health problems kicking off too. On the phone to the doctors the other day, they asked me to tell her to cut back a bit on the drink. What drink? They recommended pads for her to wear, large ones that make her underwear feel tight. It's only during her illness that I learned she has stretch marks all over her stomach from the six children she gave birth to, from memories made for each one of us before she buried five. She told me that she would feed cabbage to her ewes so their pregnancies would go full term. Even though cabbages prolong ewe pregnancies, she learns that cabbage could cause the pituitary glands of a used fetus to atrophy, so they're born slow. I find this out when I try to give her lahana torva, cabbage soup. She's scared of what the cabbage will do to her head. She's calling me fasulia now. I look like I belong in a pot, not in a coffin. She can see me through the shroud. That evening, Anna dreamt she was a child, one of five sleeping in bed with a young husband who wouldn't speak, couldn't. His agitation was what woke them. His face had split into two and his legs were shaking under the covers. She watched him as he tried to push the parts back together before dying with his brain exposed leaking blood across their pillows. Jumping from the bed, she tried to call for help, but was too small to reach the telephone mounted on the wall. She climbed upon the backs of her dead children, reaching and finally grasping the phone before electric hands emerged, mottled by light from the phone, and grabbed her back. Her body pushing through the telephone line, she was taken on a journey through its cosmic signals, hearing a thousand similar calls for help and an operator advising her to remain calm. She woke, pressing the two sides of her face together. I found her like this and rubbed her temples until her eyes started to close and we spoke my mother resting against my arms. I'm dying on them. Just put me in the garden so it comes quicker. You're not some dirty pot in the garden. You're not dying. What about the little ones? They need their nana. As she aged, she shrank down in size to a height that was magically different. Feet out like a plie, but pigeon chested without the clarity of collarbone that she used to have and enjoy. I pile her hair up for her, a chignon from the turn of the century before, part matted by the Vaseline that I rub along her scalp line to help with dandruff and the like. 
It should have been outrageous to her that she was slathered in Vaseline, but I think it brought back girlhood memories of her hair soaked in olive oil and wrapped, hair shining and thick like a belly dancer. Hair shining and thick like a belly dancer until pulled by my hair out of a cupboard. This is the thing with forgotten memories. Your mind is really good at choosing what to recall. Her husband's, my bubba, seems ever closer. She tries to cover herself more. It's exactly things like this. I told you to stop whistling at night. The jinlera going to hear you. Minions of the devil. I wasn't whistling. We're going to get you a hearing test. Don't worry. And then, the longer I live, the more I forget your dad. I remember how much, I remember more about how Lahana feels on my fingers than his face. Us living good is the best way to remember him on there. No, it's like he's a leaf that a snail has got to. I can look at pictures, but that don't help if I can't remember his smell. The only memory I've got properly is of his death. I didn't even see it. This too shall pass. Don't think too much. You know what I've told you about thinking too much. I've been listening to Tisha Jen read from Keeping the House. I, I like that you, you changed the name to Keeping the House because Keeping the House feels more uncertain and feels like it has questions that are contained in it somehow. What does it take to be able to keep the house or keep the house together? What do we mean by a house? And at what cost and to whom does keeping it together entail? Because it isn't, it doesn't feel like this book is simply a love letter to a place that is home in a simple way. Uh, a place of wholeness and belonging and coherence because some of the characters, many of the characters are alienated from their own culture um, or struggle with not belonging even with their own people or maybe especially with their own people. That while part of this book could be about keeping the house, how one gets food on the table or pays the bills or survives week to week, it also at least for me, felt like it was about a different sort of house, one that is more um, about chosen family or, or um, family defined otherwise than by blood. Um, I was wondering if, you, if that rings true and if you could talk about that aspect of the book, if it does, uh, where the alienation is coming from in this sense and whether you see this book as sort of a different iteration of a house or a family structure. I think each character in the book, be it the ones that we only see once and the ones that we stay longer with, they all seem to have a reason for why they don't feel part of their community. The alienation that I'm most um, drawn to is one where 
It's not yet been diagnosed. It's not yet been found. What is it that is making this thing so difficult to put a finger upon? I often found with my poetry that there would be a narrator floating over the top that always um, sabotaged the romance or um, had some type of ploy to make this scene of a village dinner suddenly feel um, as if uh, it was about to break into a debauchery, you know, or something like this. With keeping the house, I wanted to be conscious of that narrator, this um, linguistic tendency that I have towards um, messing around with them. Because I think, I often wonder why we've all been put here. Why, why do we all feel lonely? You know, so many people from so many different fortunes and blessings and hardships in their life feel it's a very relatable type of loneliness. And, you know, this feeling of being lonely in a crowded room. And I think I'm grateful that I'm a writer because I can, in my loneliness or isolation, draw in towards myself with words. Um, I hope that readers can feel the same sense of solace in that. It, when we're th thinking about what you just, the scene you just read, also I'm wondering, uh, thinking about intergenerational trauma and PTSD, if it would be safe to say that the source of the PTSD is different for each of the generations, that for one, it's the 74 war in Cyprus and its aftermaths. And then I guess for all of them, you could say they're living in the afterlives of this war, but, but also direct experiences in England, whether it be the riots in the eighties or sexual violence in, in someone's life, all potentially leading to this, this glitching that you describe is that a is that a fair characterization that maybe perhaps they're um even if there's a lineage to their trauma there's a way in which there's something discreet and separate about it at the same time thank you so much for for seeing that it's, um, i'm grateful i i i definitely feel so when i'm looking at a character like William. He's one of my favorite characters in the entire book. And, you know, we see his CPTSD come in when he's on a bus one day and he just skips all of his stops. And we only know parts of his backstory. And I was intrigued by this. Um, I want to also show people characters where we don't have a way into their trauma. We know parts of it. We know that certain tragedies have taken place, but we don't really know the full story. And I think that's often the case um, between lovers or friends or just anybody that's outside of your body that can't really know what's going on and what's been before and what's to come. So I like to pay, pay love to people in that way as well. You know, those characters that maybe they're not, um, you know, with William, he's not, part of um, the, maybe the same lineage of CPTSD. He's 
tied in in some way to the Turkish heroine trade through his knowledge of the other characters, but he's not. And I am very interested in those different measures of closeness we have to various um, bubblings, like these pots that are going to spill over. I think for me, that's how Tottenham felt. Yeah. I wanted to stay a beat longer with the house's form. Um, you were taking a class called Modernity in the City, where you were reading books by J.G. Ballard, like High Rise and Crash, and thinking about buildings and structures and cities. And you've said that you wanted to write about a city and its glitches, and I was, and that you wanted the text that you were studying in this class in some way to be spoken to or to speak to the book that you were writing. I just wondered if you could talk to us a little bit about some of that if 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 this book is talking to other books or talking to notions of 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 city or architecture or space in some way from what you learned there i love brutalist architecture something that i particularly love about it is the intention behind it you know Bossier, he he wanted there to be us face to face with nature and reach each other in the quickest, most mathematical, precise way possible by having, you know, walkways in the sky and these other um, concrete, machinated solutions to intimacy and closeness. I wanted to add my hat to the ring by. You know, the way that Ballard writes about these high rises is, um, is sensual. It's very, um, even in the catastrophe, he's so in love with the concrete. For me, I'm in love with the concrete in another way. I'm aware of the failings. And so I like to try and signpost governmental failings with these architectural designs and the way that even though these things are mapped out and plotted for us um, we have uh, we are the societies that like the communities that I write about the people that have to live in these second-hand designs in designs that were modeled after an artistic build but without any of the actual um, safety measures put in place you know, um, with recent tragedies in, in England, like Grenfell. And, you know, I'm living in a place at the moment, there's like a, a leak's just taken place and my landlord will not fix it. And I'm sure that we can all agree, I think there's something about um, the way that people without a higher level of income are just kind of forced, they're, they're rooted and they, you know, they're, they're, they're predestined by the way that the buildings are infringed upon them. But at the same time, they're not, um, there isn't that sense of artistic dwelling that you might get with a ballad book. Mm. You know, it's not, um, it's not all luxuriant. Someone else who I think does this in a really wonderful way is uh, Caleb Femi. He wrote a poetry collection called Poor. Um, and I think it really looks at that, the, there's a poem in it called Concrete One, I believe, where it's like an architect expresses his intentions for a site. And then the resident actually talks about their relationship with the place. And I really like this. 
this um, conversation taking place. Yeah. I, I also wanted to ask you about, and I'll probably get this wrong, but you were describing, because at around the same time that you were taking this class, I think you were also diagnosed with complex PTSD, and you were describing your experience with your therapist. You described how they would have you first imagine a room. So I'm thinking again of you, you're at the same time you're taking this class on cities and and architecture your therapist is having you imagine a room and from the room to reconfigure your own memories, deconstruct them and reimagine them. Um, and that you, you pictured the book as being made up of rooms like this. And I, I guess, I don't know if I'm saying it right, but I would love to hear more about this as a, as a, an approach as a writer, because it sounds like it is a therapy for sure, but it also sounds like it's a therapy that you've used as a framing um, in a way to approach what you've lived um, and then how you can reimagine it as fiction. I feel so happy you brought that up because I, I also, yeah, this is such a, a fragment in time in my memory that it's nice to think back to the way that it was also a rich area for creativity. Building those rooms in with, with my therapist, it felt interesting because things that I lingered on were never really happenings. They were more the shimmer in a kettle or the way that if you stood at a 70 degree angle in the room, you would feel a breeze from the top left. And it became vital to my writing to write in that manner, to build rooms at a distance and also not try to skip past the boring bits of the room. I, you know, for various reasons, couldn't be in Tottenham for some of the times where I was writing the book because it was a bit fraught and so trying to construct a room and then collapse it felt very um, freeing because I got to talk about the kettle that was shining and then I also got to fashion the countertop below it and I often talk about like you know objective truth and the way that um, we can as long as we're hurtling towards what we seek um, it's okay if you've made certain things, taken certain artistic liberties. And I think when I compare those therapy sessions with some of what I learned during my degree, a big thing that come out with was like hauntology. So I really love Mark Fisher and um, the way that streets are embedded with memories and you step foot on a certain crack in the asphalt and it will set something off. And this, I think, gives people a real sense of understanding themselves to see the importance in a road, to see the importance in a small item, because you can use that to root yourself back towards the happening and also to ground yourself within that happening 
So if I was constructing that room and a memory came back, um, because you or you feel your body in the room with you when you're building those rooms. So, you know, you can put your hand on the countertop, place yourself there, and then slowly bring yourself back in. So they all came in tandem. Well, I wanted to ask you about research, speaking of a, a quote-unquote objective truth in creating this book, because I know you interviewed people and that you went and you stayed in Northern Cyprus for a while. Uh, and I was wondering if you could talk about both of these, the, the process of interviewing people, if and how you disguised identities, particularly if, you're, if someone's talking about something that's criminal, um, and then what you felt like your experience being in, in Northern Cyprus itself did or didn't do for writing Keeping the House? Mm. I, I, I'm a research-led artist. I find it so fun to watch as all of these stories start to lay themselves out. And with those that informed Keeping the House, I had a lot of consent. People came to me, they heard that I was writing a book. You know, like, oh, little Tisha's writing a book, like, oh, she's writing it about this topic. That's so funny, my uncle so-and-so. And I loved this, you know, <laughs> just that <laughs> as if you'd be sitting down for a, for a beer with somebody and they would be, they wanted to tell me stories. And so often, with the interviews, I would go into some of the cafes that are similar to those in the novel. I'd sit with the geezers. I'd tell them what the book was about and I'd explain to them the scene that I wanted to write. And then with that scene, they'd say, all right, well, this reminds me of when I did this. And so you should get him to do this. Mm. And so they were writing the book with me. That's amazing. Thank you. It was really fun. It was really like, I, I would ring them up afterwards and just say, you said 40. Did you mean 40 or 41? Because I just Googled and it said 43. And, <laughs> you know, we'd come back to, we'd find a number together. With Kuplas, you know, going to my village um, and going around, that felt a bit more painful because I don't feel there's, much healing on that part of the island yet because it's still in a in a um, in a period of uncertainty and you know the last time I was in the village um, the boys were beaten up by um, police on the other side of the island and you know I'm sure the Greek Cypriot people have their own stories as well so it's like I felt you know there's a it's not a it's, it's a painful spot to be in. But Turkish Cypriot humor is very funny. So I, often when people would give me anecdotes that they wanted to put in the book, they would tell it in like a riddle. It would be really funny. Like um, one that I almost took verbatim was the idea of hiding under the cupboard from your husband because so many women told me that they had to do that to avoid 
their arranged marriages that they would like just duck and dive away from them <laughs> and it's just like but they would be telling me that while they were sat on their husband's laps and it was all very like you know there's a lot of various different realities taking place at once there because mm. like we all know that it's a it's dodgy but it's also they're very much in love now and I and I like I often say I like to I like to rest in those in those truths I think you know the ones that are contradictory and I think the research that I found the hardest was um, writing about Jersey and um, because I've never lived in Jersey so even though it's like a drug haven and I had to put it in the book um, because it's tax, no tax. You could just chuck your, your money there and it's fine. Um, so that had to go through the archives of the British Library quite a bit. And so that took quite a lot of time. But then I had to think about how can I do this in a way that engenders consent? How can I draw from um, dead material, um, you know, like, well, that not, you know, that material that can't speak back to me the way that people who are on the phone can. And so with that, I took much more care with um, really just using certain words in scientific terms, mm. legal terms, things like this. Yeah, I want, I want to spend a little bit of time with um, these questions of concern of representation. Um, because for one, I wanted to start with um, that you've said before that you you had particular concerns about representing Northern Cyprus and the conflict that resulted in the partition of the island, that you wanted to be even-handed and not let your personal feelings and passions to influence you too much. But I wondered, I, I guess I wondered, why not let your personal feelings and passions influence you or influence you too much, given that your characters are mainly Turkish Cypriots, and you are. Um, what about representing your characters based on how you feel and how you feel passionately? Um, what what about your your ethics or your orientation to writing holds you back from from writing that way? I think um, I. I'm a big believer in self-care, you know? I, I love to make sure that I'm not giving my, um, giving my hand away when I write. And part of that is in protecting my personal opinions and giving those another place to live in a more transparent manner. And while I am under no illusions that my feelings and passions, um, you know, are just bitten into every part of the book, I think I I try to be as mindful about that as possible because it then allows for a book that feels more character-driven. I see it as separate to myself. And I think it's this sense of, always trying to separate myself from the characters that brings out a third character. So there's me, there's the character I intend to write, and then there's 
the mutant baby that comes out from it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, this is super fascinating to me because you normally, like in the most general and generic way, you hear about people wanting to merge with their character or to feel no distance from their character. They're the political reasons to be even-handed when you're portraying, say, the the war in Cyprus, for instance. But you've made formal decisions also where you, it seems to me like you put forth a separateness of your character as a as a virtue or an attribute. I wanna I wanna explore that a little bit with you. When when you were talking with Max Porter, you said, for instance, that Damla's character, even though she's one of the most prominent characters, she's almost a fly on the wall, watching people outside of her field of reference, describing them without herself having full access to their experiences. And you said to Max that through portraying Damla this way, that you came to feel that using this outsider perspective as a linguistic tool and vantage point, rather than trying to inhabit the people you wrote about, that it worked well as a mood to write within, which I love. I love this notion of it as a mood that you're writing within. And you've also said that you use filmic techniques in your writing to make it feel more like being a spectator. This, I mean, this, I love that this is so, this is so different than what I typically hear. Um, And particularly your choice not to try to inhabit the people you're writing about. And I wondered if this is connected in some way to not wanting to be passionately subjective about Northern Cyprus, for instance. Um, And I also wondered if not inhabiting others that are different than you maybe connected to this hesitation you had around Jersey, for instance, if that choice is more than an aesthetic choice, um, if, if it's more than just creating a spectator experience, but also if it's informed by political considerations too around the representation of others. I think a large part of it is political considerations because perhaps because of my academic background or maybe I think more so growing up in quite a volatile environment I've always had to be cautious of my words and I've always been aware of the power of words once you put things in print they are there and we must know that you can hurt people with your words so if I'm going to um, say something quite powerfully against a culture or against the government, I I need to make sure that I'm doing it knowing that it's coming from me. So, because I think that there's an illusion that writers of fiction have that if they put it in the book that it will kind of go unnoticed and through that, they can put all of their secret opinions in and then they've said their point but they can go go free with it but you know I um, worked with English Pen for a good time out of time volunteering with them I also with my work at Poetry Translation Centre 
and then again with Tilted Axis we represent a writer called Hamid Ismailov and you know he he came to the UK having been um, forced to leave Uzbekistan for his political writing in within fiction so I think it's important you know I come from you know not not just Kupra's you know all this I come also with this big from Turkey you know there's um such severe censorship happening there with writers and so I need to make sure that when I say things that I think for me there are some things that I'm waiting for within essays that I can't put into my fiction or I choose not to mm. um that being said I like seeing the geezers in the calf scenes having their debates because I like the way that they yo-yo between each other I think when I do make a strong stance, I try to um, let the characters have it out between themselves while I watch them. I want to ask you about this in relationship to sensitivity readers, because I mean, you have a there's you have a sensitivity to the points of view that are not your own, and a, and you've constructed a book that contains that sensitivity, but you've also said that you're passionate about sensitivity readers and that you had several for this book. So I guess I was hoping maybe you could speak to sensitivity reads and readers um, generally, but also who, who you reached out to or um, what sort of sensitivity reads you wanted the book to have and, and, and that process and, and anything you discovered in that process? When I first heard about sensitivity reads, uh, I remember thinking, how preposterous, just write the book. <laughs> like, just If you don't know about it, don't include it. Why do you need a sensitivity read? And then I realized even the things I thought I knew about, I don't know about. You know, I, I grew up in North London. It's got one of the highest British Ghanaian communities in in the city. I think it has the highest, um, but that doesn't mean that I'm going in at all, does it, you know? So I wanted to make sure that I sat down with people and that they looked in a very pointed manner at specific pa passages and then looked at them within the context of the book as well. And that was paid work. You know, I can't just have friends do that. I needed it to be treated as work and... I wanted them to be given their dues and, and to, you know, my sensitivity readers, I wanted them to be paid. So I was really grateful that And Other Stories gave them a fair rate to sit down and really consider things. Because mm. sometimes when you show things to friends and you say, is this all right? They may or may not say it's all right. I mean, they will often give you the right advice, but I think sometimes um, paid consideration is different. I also think getting a sensitivity read from outside of your usual publishing um, crew is really important because I had um, sensitivity readers from people who were writers or poets, but they weren't in any means um, looking at things with a publishing eye. They were looking at things as like, I'm a creative person, I love reading, and I identify with this particular culture that you're writing about, so let me just check it out. So I wanted to have that type of those differences in status within sensitivity reads because I think I think the people that are 
going to be wounded the most by something going wrong are usually not people within publishing because sometimes people within publishing have become desensitized. I'm not saying this is always the case, but it's easy to become desensitized. I've been editing myself to what is and isn't all right. And sometimes getting something, someone with a fresh perspective can be really helpful. Is it true that um, maybe your own version of a sensitivity read or was a sensitivity cook that you went to lots of your friends' moms' kitchens and cooked a lot of the foods that are in the book? I had to. Um, <laughs> was, um, I have some aspirations of doing a, a little um, experimental cooking vlog, I think, after cooking, after keeping the house. Maybe I'll call it cooking the house. Um, you can't put a recipe in a book and not eat it, I think. And um, I did it before and after. I wanted to like make sure that, you know, like that peanut soup was going down in a set, I was thinking of the textures of things and I was thinking of how it would stay in a pot. I mean, some of these meals I've been eating since I was very, very small and more so than Turkish food as well, some of them. So there's that lived long-term memory of it, but there are some recipes that it was very hard to get from certain people mm. and they really didn't want to give them away and that felt particularly victorious. I thought it was really nice just that being allowed into certain kitchens. Nice. Anything new that's now from that process part of your, your cooking on a day-to-day -day basis? I've recently, so that there's a, um, a prawns recipe in the, in the book that I was waiting quite a while to get particular seasoning packages and stuff. But also there's a Turkish meal in the book called Molahir. It's Turkish Cypri actually, and it's very difficult to cook and it smells just like weed. Mm. And I always thought I could cook it. When I tried to cook it in advance of this book, um, I just I just got it really bad. But I was really grateful to get that one because it's a meal that's not necessarily a lasting meal. Um, because it's just so rare. The Arab smaller molly here. It's not a plant that's easy to get. So I was thinking a lot about this when, when writing the book, these rare foods, rare memories, and trying to hold them in a place. Well, l listening to you read the book, as people now have also, and, and reading the book myself, it's clear the connection between your life as a poet and as a DJ and your life as a prose writer. Um, you can definitely feel the attention to the music of the syntax, to the rhythms not just of life, but of the sentences. But there's this whole other world of interest that you sort of alluded to at the beginning with AI uh, that doesn't have an obvious connection to me to the book, but I'm sort of hoping there might be some secret connection to the book. And that is your interest in the human in relationship to the technological, to transhumanism and posthumanism, where your master's thesis looked at representations and simulations of the female body in post-human literature. You've also mentioned the manifesto on xenofeminism, um, mm. how the ways not only capitalism reshapes our bodies, but how the ways we use technologies of 
sexuality to remodel ourselves, how this, this reframing and reshaping is, is usually happening through the perspective of the white cis man. Um, so I guess I was, I was hoping you could talk about this ongoing interest of yours that it's been central to some of your artistic collaborations and with some of your video projects. Do, do any of the questions that animate those projects, do they find their way in some quiet way into keeping the house? Which, at least on the surface, feels very far from this other aspect of you. I, I'd like to think so. Keeping the house exists within a certain period of internet history and radio history, you know, that is uh, untouched in some ways from the way that Twitter and social media has glitched our minds. There's a outsideness to keeping the house that felt like a departure from where we are now in society. And writing, keeping the house while working on like AI tech projects felt very interesting because I was writing in the nostalgic manner about something that's gone and won't return unless, uh, you know, unless we have some type of digital apocalypse. And I think- We can hope. <laughs> yeah, I mean, honestly, <laughs> so the singularity is not far now. So, um, <laughs> you know, when we write about women, um, when the same way a robot engineer, robotics engineer, will fashion a woman to be very particular to uh, you know their needs, they'll 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 design. Um, you know, they'll have an insert, a sensex insert, for example, within a fembot that heats their private parts and allows their vocal register to shift and therefore cue different moods. I wanted to also push back against that, that I, we're keeping the house. And Jemila is a character that I think does that a lot, pushing back against that I. She takes people's caps and wears them herself. So I was reading that you you hosted a workshop on poetry translation where the poetry was either translated by artificial intelligence or generated in the first place by artificial intelligence um, and that your group would then translate this AI-translated or AI-generated poetry into various languages represented in the in the poetry translation group. Talk to us a little bit about that. Machine-generated poetry is generated in English, and the people that often design those AIs will come from North America rather than England. Um, so it's a specific context of American English. And I think, you know... That's not always the case. Like with, with Microsoft's um, Show OS, um, it, it was a kind of spectral English, a different, different mashup of various Englishes. But I wanted to talk within those workshops about 
why we need to start creating AI in other languages and why more people from different backgrounds, different class backgrounds as well, needed to engage with that and look at the way that creativity intersects with technology. Because I do think that something that people often comfort themselves with is like, even if uh, if we reach singularity, which I think we have already, but even if we do, um, that's okay because they're never going to be able to write as well as us so they're never going to be able to make music as well as us and so there's this false sense of security where the machine is seen as so totally uncreative but it's very creative and it will become more creative with the more people that add their words and their um, thought patterns to it the more databases that are uploaded the richer that source content will become and then of course it can match up or compete because isn't that all creative collaboration? Some sense of uh, matching, competing, interpretation. I know that there are poems of mine that are not as high a standard as Jawais, you know? And um, I, without sounding too kooky, have a lot of respect for machine-generated creativity, those bots and those opportunities for surprise that you might find that are not human, even if it was a human database. I wonder if your impulse to look at um, the translation that AI does um, as not neutral, that that it's coming from both in the hegemony of an Anglophone world and often from white male coders. And so um, examining that sort of invisible structure, if that impulse is, is connected, if we, if we go back to the very beginning of our conversation, the impulse to look at something like uh, crime fiction or crime narratives and looking at um, the story of the heroin trade and, Tottenham, um, but then finding the voices that are very much part of that story but are never spoken in that story. I think perhaps I'm inherently suspicious because I'm a curious person. I always like to think twice about things. I think I grew up in a place where you don't cross the road without checking who's on the other side of the road and... Um, a lot of us have grown up in that way. I think it's a very modern condition as well that when I think the bigger a place grows, the more outside factors start to determine your day-to-day -day, um, occurrences. So this suspicion, this this um, this cautiousness, this mindfulness I think is a, a, a millennial type of survival you know um, not millennial person but like a, a millennial thinking that we all have now because we're, we're there um, are we the Gen Z now aren't we there <laughs> but you know this um this very current grasp on the way that everything is illusory when I um, I'm talking to you I'm looking out from my flat and there's a 
place opposite where I often see a couple arguing and tonight they are right up but they're literally like just just like moving around with their kids in the same room and I think it's all these that things are happening around us and it's really nice very contradictory and I just want to pay attention to those things because often the break clause between them like that that the the thing that lets people free from those situations that very catalyst it, it will be where the story happens and can you talk a little bit about the EP that's going to come out accompanying the book another way you've cross genres but also invited others to participate in the creation of keeping the house is this um, musical endeavor I love the EP so far <laughs> I feel so happy when I think about it it's um it's built on a refrain in the book retell it so it's yours and it's yours now and as a producer I know how much production is is creative and fun and tells a story so I wanted the producers the sound engineers the rappers the singers on the EP to all pick any bit of the book that they were drawn to and write towards it and then I would write around them and collaborate with them come into the room suggest ideas and so those studio spaces those phone calls have been uh, very bountiful with creative um excitement and frivolity and cheekiness so um, when we there's a song on the EP that I think is about eight minutes long now and some of it was um, me going to the McDonald's in that we see in the book and ordering the meals that the characters would have been ordering with the same amount of people and then like you know the sounds that we hear are like the the McDonald's paper um bag getting squashed and the chips being crunched I think it it allows the book to live in another way but it also comes back to for me the heart of my creative practice which is I'm not doing it for me and I'm not doing it for this book I'm just trying to tell as many stories as possible to help as many people as possible I want to bring as many people in as I can when when is it coming out I think February February okay I'm waiting for, uh, we're trying to source funding for a short film to come that will be attached to it. And I may or may not wait for the short film. So I think the album's there, though, the EP's done. So we're just waiting on the visuals. Well, tell, tell us before we end what, what you're working on now. I know that at least one of your projects is a graphic novel and that perhaps you're working on a TV pilot also? I am. I am. Um... I've had a few different production companies approach me, which has been really lovely. And, you know, I, it's been like exciting, but you know, my natural suspicions, I've, um, I've been waiting and holding out. I'm, I want to write the pilot and have complete ownership over it. I want to be an executive producer on the project and I want to do the casting and I want to be there during the conversations about translation. And so I'm trying to create this template by writing, well, I've written the pilot now and having these meetings, I think, you know, there's the infrastructure of film and TV is very interesting and being 
I think when people see that I'm 26, they immediately are cautious about giving me much agency when it comes to the work that I create. But I've seen people like Michaela Cole, Issa Rae, they, they've done it. And I'm so massively inspired by other women who have um, really just pushed against those, uh, is it, would, would you say like a, it's a clerical thing often that where they're just like, yeah, but you know, we've got this person who knows the system, so it'd be a bit easier to get them in. And so I'm very much wanting to just push against that, be in the picture, and then by being in the picture, I can bring the right people into the picture. Yeah. I'm also writing two short films and the graphic novel and novel two. Oh my gosh. So we're, we're right before a big wave of Tija Jin uh, art. Thank you. I, uh, <laughs> I feel very inspired since the book's come out. It's, it's been you know, conversations like this, I, I go away and I write after them. It feels really just fascinating. Yeah. When you, I think conversations or a good meal, it does that, doesn't it? Where you suddenly can access a bit of your mind that maybe was sleeping before. Well, thank you for spending the time with me today. Thank you so much. Thank you. We are talking today to Tija Jin the author of Keeping the House from and Other Stories. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's program was recorded at the volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength, makeshift home office of me, David Naiman. For the bonus audio, Tija Jin reads what can best be described as a poem that is almost a song, a heart-stoppingly beautiful poem created especially for us. This joins bonus audio from Jory Graham, Alice Oswald, Padraigo Tuma, Forrest Gander, Deren Negrifa, Teju Cole, Ted Chang, Lady Long Soldier, Richard Powers, and many others. You can find out more about subscribing to the bonus audio and the other potential benefits of becoming a listener supporter at patreon.com slash between the covers. Or if you prefer a one-time donation, you can do so by PayPal at tinhouse.com slash support. I'd like to thank the Tin House team who helped make the show run. Elizabeth DeMeo, and Elisa Ogie in the book division, Jacob Valla in the art department, Becky Kramer in publicity, and Lance Cleland, the director of the Summer and Winter Tin House Writers Workshops. Finally, I'd like to thank Imre Lodbrog and Barbara Browning for creating the outro. Their album, Imre Lodbrog, A Sapatita Me, can be found on iTunes, and Barbara Browning's trove of ukulele covers can be found at soundcloud.com slash Barbara Browning.